Evil 1-1, we have a visual on your position. We have enemy movement 300 meters to your south. Enemy troops in the open. Small arms and RPGs, you are clear to engage. Roger, Evil CP, we are TIC. I say again, we are troops in contact, requesting air support. Stand by for call for fire. Solid copy. Troops in contact. Be advised, air is red at this time. Repeat, air is a no-go. You're on your own. Dig in and give them hell. Give them hell. Give them hell. Welcome to the Dogs of War. Hosted by Stephen Houston. All right, what's going on, folks? This episode of Dogs of War is brought to you by Alpine Arms. Alpine Arms is a veteran-owned and operated gun store and training source located in Eagle, Colorado. They specialize in training opportunities from pistol, rifle, night vision, tactical medicine, long range, and they offer the Colorado experience while doing so. Seriously, the range is surrounded by gorgeous mountains. It's fucking awesome. Check them out. AlpineArms.com or 50 Chambers Ave in Eagle, Colorado. Podcast is also brought to you by Relentless Tactical. Relentless Tactical makes all kinds of firearms accessories from holsters to hoodies. But what they're really known for is their concealed carry belt. I personally rock the ultimate concealed carry leather gun belt, and I friggin' love it. It's a one and a half inch, 14 ounce premium full grain U.S. leather badass so go check them out they have a lifetime warranty relentless-tactical.com and let them know dogs of war sent you podcast is also brought to you by hoffen tactical hoffen tactical is a small company based out of yuma arizona and they make and sell a large variety of dog training equipment they were gracious enough to send me a custom agitation muzzle and uh it's badass it's quality as any other on the market they also make everything from slap mills to custom bite suits so um, go check them out they're 100 handmade here in the states they can be found at hoffen tactical canine training equipment on facebook and instagram i also want to give a plug to joint forces canine facility it's in siloam springs arkansas and it's rob shoemake's place uh, i recently attended a, po- or a, not a podcast a uh, seminar there and i honestly I wouldn't be plugging it if I didn't think it was uh, badass. So super world-class, totally fenced in, 20-acre facility, cut grass, beautiful air-conditioned buildings, a fully stocked pro shop. I probably spent over a 1000 bucks on new gear, and uh, they host some of the best seminars in the world. They also do mobile grooming, police dog training and sales, protection dog training and sales, and pets. Check them out, Joint Forces Canine. Also want to give a nice little shout out to the Deadpool Decoy School. It's Sean Edwards uh, Decoy School. Um, I, that's the seminar that I attended down in Arkansas. And uh, world class, man. Sean's system for developing protection and police dogs. So easy to follow and understand. And uh, you get a lot of reps in with different dogs. And uh, check them out. They do seminars all over the country. All right. My guest today is Travis Lloyd. Travis Lloyd is the owner and founder of American Canine Dynamics in Ohio. And he did about a decade of overseas contracting work in the Middle East to include a lot of time spent in Afghanistan. And, um, you know, he had a struggle after he got out like everybody else does. You know, even though the military's different than contractors, those dudes go over there with no fucking support like we have. And then they, they, they get out and they don't have the VA like we have. Like he talks about buddies that got injured on duty and they had to pay out of pocket 
because insurance only covers so much. So my hat's off to those contractors. We talk a lot about dogs, and then towards the end of the podcast, we, we get into the contracting stuff. So you really don't want to miss this one, guys. So give it up for the great and powerful Travis Lloyd. Also, please rate us in whatever app that you use to listen to podcasts. See you. All right, what's going on, brother? How are you? Doing good. Awesome. Thanks for taking the time out to join me. I know you're super busy. I uh, really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me. Cool. Why don't you just uh, introduce yourself real quick? Tell everybody who you are and uh, what you do. My name is Travis Lloyd. I'm a dog trainer. I own a business in Northeast Ohio called American Canine Dynamics. Sweet. Awesome, man. So I always do kind of a quick lightning round of questions. Um, What is something that you're not good at? Something that I'm not good at? Um, Lying. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. That's a good one. Um, What's a, a food that you really, really like that others might think is weird? I don't know. Maybe I don't know. The weird about as weird as I get is sushi. Like some of the raw fish can be weird to people, but I'm pretty much down to try any type of sushi. Shit, I love sushi. We, me and my wife, U- eat quite a bit of it, man. It's very good. I would say, yeah, unat, unagi. It's pretty weird for that, some people. Is that like the creamy sea urchin looking stuff? I've never yeah. had that. I want to try it. I'll have to it's look. Sweet. It's like sweet tasting. Oh, shit. It's kind of the exact yeah. opposite of what I would have imagined. Mine, I <laughs> guess I would say pickles. Pickles probably my favorite food. I go through a jar of pickles every couple of days for sure. Like kosher, and sweet? Yeah, no, I do the Vlasic Zesty Dills. And I do like kosher. Uh, what are the ones that are refrigerated when you buy them? Clausens? Yeah, Clausens. Mm-hmm. Those are delicious. Yeah. They are delicious. When I go to the deli, I get the big fucking boar's head ones. Those are good, too. Um, if you could go anywhere in the world, uh, on vacation and not have to worry about dogs, business, finances, anything, where would you go? Thailand, Northern Thailand. I've always wanted to go. It's that's on, I would say in my top 10, I wouldn't say my top five. I've been to, I think 17 different countries, but I've always wanted to go and train Muay Thai over there for like a month and like do it like how they do it, like live there and, you know, clean the gym and eat with everybody. I think that would be sick. Mm-hmm. That's what I. Uh, that's what I'd always say when I go there, and then I just drink a lot and get tattoos. <laughs> well, that's a good way <laughs> to spend time too. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Um, last one. Uh, favorite everyday carry pistol if you have one. Glock seventeen nine millimeter. Is that the short slide, longer grip, or the opposite? Opposite. Okay. I carry a Sig three six five. I used to uh, run a gun store here, and the the Glock, I believe it's a forty three. It's the tiny one. I didn't mm-hmm. like how it was only single stack in the magazine, and it didn't come with night sights. It was like an extra thing. And the Sig, just the trigger, to me is a lot more refined than the than a Glock. I used to carry only Glocks, but I I, I kind of mix Sig in the and the in the works as well. Yeah, there's a hack on forty three, a cop buddy of mine hit like i don't know if it's a sig clip or what but i think the uh you it's interchangeable with another clip um where he can actually carry 16 in his nice magazine yeah yeah 
Yeah. So I've got a 15 rounder and then I think the stock magazine is a 10, 10, 10 or 12, 10, 10 plus one. So I appendix carry and then I have the 15 on the other side, opposite of the appendix. Oh, it's so small. You forget it's there sometimes and carry it into places that you shouldn't, but yeah, it <laughs> we, is. Uh, Ohio just became constitutional carry. Nice. Hell yeah. That's how it should be. Yeah. That's how it should be. We got to have a CCW here, but in your car, your place of business or in your home, you can conceal carry without a permit. If you get out, you can like tuck your shirt in behind it. That counts because it's visible from three sides. But I'm personally, uh, I'm completely against open carrying. I think that's kind of a clown thing to do personally. But, you know, hey, if people do it, then that's on them. I just, I'd rather be not seen as a target right away, you know, or freak people out and have to have interactions with law enforcement unnecessarily while you're being armed. Sure. <laughs> but, uh, all right, well, so where were you born? Where'd you grow up? I was born in Yokosuka, Japan, on a military base. Uh, both my parents were in the army. I grew up all around the world, kind of a potted plant. Um, spent a lot of time in Europe, uh, most of my childhood in Europe, and then uh, moved to the Middle East right out of high school, and spent most of my young adulthood in the Middle East. Nice. Is that where you're doing the contracting work? Yes. Awesome. Sorry. Adjusting this level here and bumping your volume up a little bit. So did you kind of grow up with dogs and have an interest with dogs or when did that kind of come into fruition for you and, and wanting to be a dog trainer? I did. I grew up with dogs, always loved dogs. I was always the kid that was taking the dog with me everywhere. Um, and then uh, once we moved overseas, we you know, we didn't have dogs or PCSing all the time. It was just kind of not the right lifestyle. Um, but I always wanted one. As soon as I turned 18, I, I bought my first dog and started training to the best of my abilities just by reading books and following what other people were doing. Nice. Was it just, uh, just doing pet obedience or did you get into like Schutzen or any kind of sports like that right away? No, I wasn't doing any sport. The guy that I bought my dog from, he actually used to uh, train dogs for the DEA, and I did some training with him and just kind of mirrored whatever he was doing. And then, um, you know, after my time in Afghanistan, I decided, like, I want to do this seriously. I want to go to school. I want to, you know, further my education and, you know, do what makes me happy and train dogs. So <clears throat> what steps, I guess, would you say, did you take and, and where'd you go and who did you study under during when you started your formal like learning process to become a trainer? Um, so right when I got home, I started working at this training facility, basically as the kennel master and doing what I'd always been doing, just pet obedience. And that really wasn't fulfilling. Um, and the answers that I was looking for with dogs weren't being provided there. So I started hitting conferences and stuff where I met, um, the, the man who runs and operates top tier canine. And we had a lot of similar, um, ideologies as far as like lean management processes and things like that. 
Um, and so that really resonated with me and how he applied that to the business side of dog training. So I went to talk to your canine and studied there. I did an internship there. I lived there for like four or five months, just working ridiculous amounts of uh, working dogs and Malinois and went through the whole working dog program and stuff. And uh, yeah, once I got out of school, you know, started looking for more mentorship. And that's when I linked up with um, Sean and some, uh, some other guys, a guy here named Todd Dunlap. And I really like started to hone my skills with them. Nice. Would, uh, when you started doing your bite work, was it just, uh, did they throw you in a suit right away? Did you start with the sleeve? Was, I mean, what, how did that, uh, process look for you? Um, so at, in Florida at school, there was a couple of the decoys who had sport backgrounds and a couple of students who were interested in sport. And the main decoy down there was a guy named Andrew Alexander. He's super talented uh, with an IPO background. I remember just watching him. I'm like, this guy's like a like ballerina in a bite suit, like poetry in motion. And uh, I, I was like, man, I need it. And um, he taught me. Uh, how to safe catch dogs and a very progressive like elaboration to moving up from like a quarter sleeve into a shutdown sleeve and like some different scenarios. And um, so he really got me into the technicalities of bite work. But um, when I was going through school, I was learning police canine training. And that's where I first started it. And it was, you know, uh, pretty archaic at times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I remember, uh, I, I think it was like 2011. I started, uh, my buddy had shits and dogs and I was kind of infatuated by it. And I started going to hanging out at the club, you know, it was only a 20 minute drive. And, uh, they said that I said, I'm not scared of these dogs. I don't think I said that, but maybe I did. Like I had a little arrogance about it. You know, I just got out of the Marine Corps and all that. And they put me in like this super worn out, like comp weight, maybe even lighter jacket. And, and, uh, they're like, all right, you're going to do a left tricep bite. And I was like, what does that mean? They're like, just run away and raise your arm. And I took off and I raised my arm and the dog hit me in the center of the back, like right between my shoulders and he couldn't grip. And this dog was probably the biggest German shepherd I've ever seen. I think he was like over 110 pounds, but not fat. And, uh, we reset and they did it again and they held it on the left tricep bite and literally made me fight this dog for like 10 or 15 minutes, dude. By the end of it, I was on the ground on my hands and knees crying and like I'm tattooed all over my body. I like pain, you know, I don't really cry from pain, but that dog mm -hmm. beat my ass, dude. It pulled the, let's see if you can see this, pulled the ink out of, out of my tattoo. My arm was black and blue and purple for like a month. And, uh, kind of put a sour taste in my mouth and I, I like that was wrong, right? That shouldn't happen. I mean, obviously, you know, you got to come up through the ranks or whatever, but that kind of was a little much, huh? Right. Do yeah. Ever, do you ever have any of those experiences along the way? Oh, for sure. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and what's weird is that was actually like later into my path as a decoy, when I first started, like I had really good teachers. I was lucky they had sport backgrounds. Another guy, um, his business is called Tactical Canine Approach. He was doing like Ted Dogs downrange and stuff. And he was a pretty serious guy. 
and we'd be, you know, I was working dogs and they would just like make me catch dog after dog after dog. And I just remember him and Andrew, like, you better not fucking puke. Like if you puke, we're going to, you know, like kick your ass, like go catch that dog. And, um, we just, I just catch dog after dog literally until I would puke. And, uh, yeah. Shit. I remember first time when I caught some dogs in Colorado at one of the clubs I used to hang out with. Dude, like the altitude change, I didn't take that into effect, man. And it was like 10 times harder than being, you know, in Tennessee doing it. It was fucking crazy. <clears throat> so, uh, moving forward, computer shutting off here. Um, when, when, uh, like in the progression or I guess how long ago did it come up? Like, Hey, I, I can actually do this and make a living. Like, when did that happen? And how did those steps look for you to start in? Your, your business. It's American Canine Dynamics or American Canine Dynamics. Yes. Okay. Got it right. Yeah. Take us through that. Um, so I got home in 2016 and was like going through the motions of integrating back into like first world problems <laughs> and all of that. And, uh, I was just trying to figure out what to do with my life on like, I kind of left that world abruptly and really felt like empty. Like I lost a, a peer group and like friends and like really every, like my whole identity, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I was just trying to figure out what's going to make me happy. And it, it always led back to dogs and, um, like, it really took the wind out of my sails when I got home and I was like, I need, you know, I just needed a win. I needed something I was good at. And I was like, I'm going to get a, you know, I know I can raise a dog. I know I can train a dog. Like, and that's what really took me on the journey. Like I got this big badass dog. Um, and I was like, well, now I got to train him. And, uh, I found, I found school and I found, you know, a deeper level of learning and, like they put the school that I went to put you through a business boot camp and like really laid out some fundamentals of the dog training business and how to be successful at it. And I'm a pretty driven person. Um, you know, if I put my mind to something, typically I don't fail at it. You know, I just go and go. And even if I do, I just get up and go harder. Um, and like put a business plan together, put it in motion and, uh, started training dogs out of my house, like just in an empty bedroom. You know, I had four kennels in there and no furniture in my living room. And I was training in there and it just like word of mouth really just took off and had a snowball effect. And I was like, man, there's really something to this. And here we are three years later, I found like the, the property that I'm on built the training facility, built the kennels and, um, it's just really taken off. Yeah. It's kind of where I'm at right now. I've got a board and train in my living room and, uh, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the same spot and I'm just, I'm just like you, I'm very driven. You know, when I put my mind to something, it's the same thing. I get, I go all in and, um, hopefully, you know, now that I'm all official and, uh, I've got some seminars, uh, in the next few months and I just, I, I don't want to stop learning, um, you know, pets to me are easy. Uh, and one of my goals in the future is to, to start working with police departments. Once my knowledge base and my 
skill set are there. Um, but you know, my problem is I'm pretty isolated from, you know, the trainers or decoys, you know, it's a couple hour drive to any police department that has dogs that are willing to say, Hey, come on out, you know, bring your dog. And so that's kind of where we're at. But, um, are you in an area where there's a lot of, uh, resources as far as other people to learn from or to, you know, people to do, do dog stuff with? Um, yes and no. So I'm, I'm very fortunate that, um, one of the canine officers here is a really good friend of mine and we have a great relationship. He's done like 20 dogs for this County. He really, um, he kind of flies under the radar, doesn't do social media, doesn't do anything like that, uh, which I'm into. Um, and he allows me to come to training and I get in the suit and work out dogs and like spot a couple dogs for me. I donated a dog to him. Um, and he just really like took me under his wing with like getting in with the police departments and working dogs and like getting my name out there with them. And for me, it's not really about making money with police canines. It's about like putting out a quality product, you know, um, quality over quantity. Uh Um, and then, so I have that resource here. Um, and then like an hour away, there's a really good Mondio ring club, uh, called West Penn Mondio. They're highest scoring in the nation, I believe. Uh, yeah. And the, the, the trainer there, he's also very low key under the radar one of the most intelligent dog trainers I've ever met. I freaking love this dude. I just, I could listen to him talk all day. I go there. He lets me get in the suit, lets me catch dogs, really mentors me. Um, I follow his Patreon page. That's the one I sent you the other day. And then Sean is also like, you know, very, very good friend, amazing mentor and only a five hour drive for me. So between those three resources, I have a pretty awesome peer group of dog trainers. Nice. Yeah. Uh, Chris from, uh, the Sean's last seminar that I was at, um, he's got a buddy he went through Napo post school with. And I think I was telling you about him. That's he's a couple hours away and I've just been waiting. I, I ordered a new, uh, custom suit and I want to make sure I have all my own shit before I go down and start, you know, at least that way I have my own stuff to and say, Hey man, teach me, you know, I can, you know, I don't want to be that guy that shows up and has to put somebody else's bite suit on and do all that. You know, um, what unique, uh, challenges have you faced as a youngish, uh, business owner slash dog trainer business owner? Um, challenges. I would say the business side more than the dog training side. Dog training comes very easy to me and my background of like project management and Sig Sigma like really allowed me to put good operating procedures into my business. But it's like the the groundwork stuff that you really have to do to have a successful business, you know, uh, business insurance, bookkeeping, accounting, um, management, you know, managing personnel. Those are, those are the challenging things for me. Um, but even now I'm at the point where like, I've kind of hired a manager where like she does an excellent job at that. And that's what, 
that's all she has to focus on. Um, because I don't, you know, I don't really want to, I don't want to be that role. I want to be, I want to be training dogs. I want to be in the bite suit. I want to be having fun and training dogs. Yeah, absolutely. So the biggest, yeah, the biggest challenge is just like running the day of fitness, making sure the the money is right, the you know the employees are getting paid, the insurance, the grounds maintenance, like the de- detail devils in the details. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I appreciate you sent me some uh, some of your your uh, I don't know what you would call that. I guess it's like your documentation for your training plans and your, you know, uh, release and stuff like that. And that was a big help. And I think my side, I went to business school, um, after I got out of the Marine Corps, you know, it's been a long time ago, but I think my biggest hurdle that I'm going to have is, you know, like we live in a resort town, basically there's two of the best ski hills in the country, 10 minutes away. So you got the billionaires and the millionaires of the world and, and the fur moms and, like I'm covered from head to toe in tattoos, much like you, but like my delivery is what I need to kind of polish up. You know, I remember you gave me a tip about don't say anything about bite work or police work. And, and that's, that's, that was huge. Cause I felt like I scared off a lot of people who just needed basic obedience with their pets, you know, and that kind of puts their brain somewhere else. Have you kind of encountered that same thing, obviously, but. Yeah, absolutely. Like I learned pretty early on to compartmentalize the two different worlds. Like, you know, (laughs) I don't bring out my Belgian when I'm doing a (laughs) demo for fluffy, you know, I bring out my golden. (laughs) Um, and I don't, you know, I told you like the analogy I used to use for socializing, you know, like 50 cow rounds going over your head (laughs) and basic, like that was a big mistake. That's not a good analogy for socializing to the pet client, you know? Um, and then like, even when I built this place, you know, I'm thinking like in, in Travis mind, this is going to be Bob American canine dynamics, right? Mm-hmm. Not really a good look for the, for the pet clients. Like, so kind of soften the edges and even like what's really helped with that too, is like selection of who I hired mm-hmm. and who I choose to work with. Like my cousin, David gum, um, he went through the same school. Um, and he's like, a hippie kid from Cali, like a very nice balanced, uh, me who oh, I'm very blunt and, you know, I don't have a problem not pulling punches or saying what's on my mind where he can kind of like finesse the situation and cater to a different audience. And, uh, like my other trainer, he looks like a, a GQ model with a background in sales. Like, oh, nice. you know, it's just a very, well-rounded diverse team and we have Brittany that managed the office who's just like a sweetheart on the phone so you know like i don't want to marginalize myself to just what appeals to me for my business right and then putting the right people around you when you get to that level is huge is is what it sounds like to me yeah yeah like you absolutely got to have that softer edge you know and uh, you know i couldn't agree more I, uh, is your facility, uh, on site where you live or do you have to drive to it? No, it's on site where I live. It's seven acres. Um, there was a, there's a horse barn that I totally renovated into kennels and training space. And like, um, I, I tell people it has like, um, franchise amenities with like small business feel to it. So you pull up to my ranch 
and it's seven acres fenced in. The training center is a two two minute walk out my front door. Um, I still have kennels in the house, and you know, still building other kennels for working dogs. So everything is right here and um, super accessible and functional and just like very easy. Do you have any like no go um, criteria for dogs that you do for your boarding trains, such as severe anxiety, separation anxiety? Like what is your go, no go uh, criteria? (laughs) Micro bullies. Like, I don't want a dog that's going to like keel over for some medical reason while it's staying with me. Even some of like the boutique breeds, I'm very selective. And I ask some probing questions to the clients to see like how they're going to be when they leave their dog with me for four weeks, Mm. you know? Um, So I don't really, with behavior mods, I'm not going to go for um, extreme aggression. That's not my thing. I don't want to deal with it. I don't like I have done it and I learned like, that's not what I want to do. I do behavior modification. Um, but not to that extreme because you can get, once you get into that stuff, like there's some pretty, uh, you know, extreme behavior modification, uh, techniques out there that at some point you're going to cross that threshold and have to use if you're really dealing with extreme cases like that. And I just don't want to do it. And, um, it's expensive and it's not guaranteed. And I just, I'd rather send them to somebody who specializes in that. Could you kind of expound on that? Just for my knowledge, like I basically where I'm at level wise is doing the, the eight, eight or nine basic commands and markers that you do, um, you know, loose leash walking, socialization. I can work on some reactiveness. Uh, I've made the leaps and bounds with this golden retriever that I have staying with me right now. But when you say behavior modification, can you kind of explain uh, a little bit better and like kind of what that is and what, what you mean? As So, all right. When somebody drops off a pet client here, we ask them a questionnaire, right? We, we give them some questions. And if, if a couple of those questions are answered in a certain way, we're going to classify the dog as behavior mod. So the way that I tell people is like behavior is going to trump obedience. Like sometimes you miss it in an evaluation too. Like weird stuff presents itself. Um, So, okay. Does your dog have bite history with humans right now? There's the way that I look at Bites, there's teeth making contact with skin would be classified as a bite. Now, what level of bite is it? Are we talking about nipping? Are we talking about mouthing? Are we talking about stitches and surgery? Are we talking about isolated incidents or repeat offenders? You know, there's, so it's not that I won't take any bite cases. It's just, on the severity of them, right? And then that's going to be like, sometimes people don't want to hear the hard recommendation that I'm going to make to them. And that's like, just to be blunt, um, you know, um, so if you're going to do behavior modification with that, like I 
can't fix a dog. I'm not a magician. I, I can train a dog. I can teach a dog. I can counter condition a dog. Um, there, there is no guarantee this behavior has happened. It will likely happen again, right? There's going to be a management protocol that you must follow as a handler after this. And even so, once you get start going down that road, what happens is what has happened to me personally is it gives people a false sense of security, right? Like, okay, so now this dog isn't showing reactivity and this dog is doing so well. And like, look at this dog doing this obedience and with this communication system. And then all of a sudden complacency sets in and we're going to let the 16 year old go on a walk without the muzzle on. Mm. Boom. Right. That's, and that's when it happens. Um, and so, yeah, that's kind of like where I'm at with behavior modification. Then you get into like things like separation anxiety or, you know, obsessive compulsive behaviors and things like that. Those are much easier to deal with. And like kind of my approach now is, what I tell everybody for B mods are, you know, medication, management, and training. And at some point, hopefully, the medication can go away. The management and training never will. Um, so some trainers are totally against medication. I'm not. I'm a pragmatic person. Like, I think if it's working and it's working well for the dog that you're working with and it puts it in a state of mind where it is receptive to learning and can calm down and you can start to gain a history of behavior. Why not? Like the ultimatum is a needle, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. I, I would rather see that before euthanasia, you know, anytime. And if, if that fails, then obviously, you know, there's not very many options that are out there. Um, yeah. I personally haven't had to deal with, um, I've had one client, so <clears throat> uh, very wealthy people, they live in Manhattan and then they live in Vail in the middle of the mountains and they have a dog that was rescued. It's some kind of German shepherd mix. It's very nervy, um, very uh, aloof towards strangers and it's had multiple bites, nothing requiring stitches or surgery. However, the owner is a female and her uh, older retired with her husband. And I had to stop working with them because they didn't want to use a crate. They didn't want to use an e-collar. They didn't want to use a prong collar. They didn't want to use a long line. They didn't want to use a muzzle. And the, they're like, I went over to their house for dinner and they've been telling me that the dog's been having crate time. And I showed them how to use free shaping and how to use the markers for, Crate training, creative positive association. And I go over for dinner and the fucking crates down the hall in the closet outside of their, I guess you would call that an apartment, but really, you know, bougie apartment. And the dog's coming up to the table and taking stuff off, food off the table. And and there's absolutely zero leadership in this household. And what, what I assumed is that the dog was resource guarding uh, the female, like we were all standing outside her, me and my wife and the dog. I had the dog in the leash in my hand and people were fucking stupid. And this old man, like literally beelined across the parking lot and almost brushed shoulders with us. And had I not been holding the leash and been paying attention to the dog's body language and what was going on that she would have bit the dude. Like she lunged for him. 
I strung her up and uh, it's just kind of mind blowing to me when you suggest, you know, that there's only a few training tools that we can use to, to help dogs. And when people are unwilling to use them, I don't personally want to work with them. Have you seen that at all? Oh, absolutely. How do like, you- um, well, I say, you know, uh, you know, do, do you ride your horse without a saddle cowboy? <laughs> you know, you got to use the equipment. Yeah. It's, there, it's there for a reason. And like, I think it was Janet Edwards handling somewhere. I really loved, she, she said, you know, we, we, uh, utilize equipment. We don't rely on it. Right. We utilize it to prevent behaviors from happening or to like guide the dog into behaviors that we want to see. Um, so yeah, uh, the way that I talk to my clients is, you know, I'm going to give you 110% of my effort, my expertise, like I'm going to treat your dog. Like I would treat my own dog and I'm going to like give you this block of instruction that I'm very passionate about and happy to share with you. Like meet me there. And like, if I make your dog a 10 and you remain at a six, like the gap's going to get bridged one way or another. Right. And it's you, it's the dog digressing is what happens. The dog's never going to get past the owner's capabilities or willingness to put in the effort, whether it be to put a collar on your dog or a a leash, you know? Um, Yeah. I've literally had people like, well, you know, um, so it's like, is he going to be, is he going to be off leash? And I tell him, well, no, he's because you need the leash for reliability and communication. And like, right? Like, and I train, I train my 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 best trained dog, my highest trained dog. Like, I work really hard every single day training her and working with her for like a block of what's like thirty to forty five minutes off leash. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, realistic goals and expectations for you know, the time that you're putting into the dog and the time that the client's willing to spend. What I love is when people come and do the boarding train and they just get hooked, you know? And then I, then I have like an extended family and like, I'm, I'm starting to grow that client base that comes back and does continuing education and advanced obedience and wants to learn about, you know, different things, whether it's just, fun tracking your dog or teaching your dog to, you know, find your keys or your wallet or whatever it is, you know, sky's the limit. If you're willing to learn and put the work in, I'm willing to teach you. Yeah, absolutely. I'm kind of running into that. We spoke briefly about this board and train. So I've done five or four private lessons with these folks and awesome people, but uh, just super busy. And they have this dog and they literally live on probably a hundred acres in the middle of the woods, in the middle of the mountains. And, um, I showed them how to charge a marker. I showed them how to teach luring. I showed them how to, with the flat collar, I had the dog healing and, and not pulling, but the dog is not seen anything other than the woods. He doesn't have a potty walk. He's never been on a leash. Um, the only time he's in a vehicle is to go to the vet and to the groomer every other week. So he won't even get into the car. I have to physically pick him up and put him in the car, which I hate doing. I don't think he knows how to jump. 
or that he can jump. And he shows up to me, you know, I put all this time in, it's just, they're paying me for an hour, but there's two or an hour of travel time plus my time being there that I'm not charging them for the travel time. And the dog shows up to me and he doesn't even respond to his name. Doesn't even respond to the clicker. It's just like they, I don't think they've done anything with them. And, you know, I, I tried to talk him into longer, but I've had him for 15 days now. He's going home in a couple of days and I'm going to have to have that uncomfortable talk. Like, Hey, like you guys have to do this homework and you have to do what I show you. And I'm, I'm honestly thinking about taking my mal out and showing focus, heal awfully show obedience, you know, and saying, this is me working with this dog for an hour or two every single day for his entire life since he was eight weeks old, like two weeks here. Yeah. I mean, we've made progress, but you know, I don't know. I it's, it's uncomfortable for me to take people's money and then them have those false expectations. How, how, you know, what would your recommendation be on managing those expectations or how that conversation would look? So, um, even in some of the literature that like I sent you, I'm like, here are the dog, here are the things that I'm going to teach the dog. Like I can't guarantee you what the dog's going to learn. Um, but if the, you know, during the evaluation, if the dog, you know, fits this temperament for the pet obedience program, it usually goes according to plan. Um, so the, the expectation is like, here's the, here is the goal. This is what we're trying to do, you know? And if the dog doesn't, it, you know, if the dog can't perform these tasks in four weeks, I want to at least have given you the skill set to continue to work on that. And mm-hmm. if the dog doesn't perform those tasks, most of the time we're going to do free follow-up lessons, you know, within reason, you know, I can't do free follow-up lessons for life, but within reason. And I, I want to give people the ability to continue to work on it with their dog. And now there's only been a couple of dogs that I really hit some like roadblocks with, um, in pet obedience. Um, and, and I have the conversation with people like, so like there's methods that we could get the dog to do this behavior. How, however, like in my training ethics, I don't do that. So how important is it to you that this little Bichon has it down, right? He's got pretty nice recall. He's got place command. He walks nice on a leash. Now he's not yipping at the neighbors. Like this little thing won't down though. Like I have other techniques, but I prefer, yeah, I prefer not to do those Mm-mm. right in four weeks you know we can spend a, we can spend more time and that's probably what the dog needs and i'd be willing to do that but i have to charge for those services right you know well and, but i can give you the tools to work on it at home yeah and that's i think that's what i'm gonna have to do and uh, this particular dog i think he's kind of a slow learner and it doesn't look like, like when I try to do luring for a spin, I like to, when a dog comes in for a reward to make him spin, to get mm-hmm. the reward from my hand, he falls over. Like, even mm-hmm. if I go slow, like, he, he, I, you know, I don't know if something's going on or what, or if it's just caveman because that's all he's ever seen. He was never taken to the park and 
gone upstairs and down slot. You know what I'm saying? Like, and I, mm-hmm. I'm heavy about that with a young dog. Like I take them to as many new places, many new surfaces, many new pictures as I can. And, and, you know, only having two weeks, like you said earlier, like we're not, I'm not a magician, you know? Um, so I don't know. I, I don't, I just kind of always think worst case scenario from my time in the military. So that when it happens, it's, it's not like a super letdown. Yeah. So just managing expectations and like, here's the thing, man, like comparison is the thief of joy is like Mm. something I just heard. Right. So like you can't compare, you know, what you're doing to what somebody else is doing or what they did or this dog to that dog. Right. Like you just do the best that you can and focus on quality. And everything else falls into place. Like you, you don't overpromise. You don't gold plate your product. You you deliver what you say you're going to deliver when you say you're going to deliver it. Nothing more, nothing less. Absolutely. And I find people respect that, and they're really happy with it. Cool. Yeah, I, there probably won't be an issue. I mean, the dog has made leaps and bounds, you know, since he's been here. My wife's like, man, he's doing really good, and it's just I have you've seen my dog, you know what I mean? And I, you're, you're absolutely right. I can't expect this dog to be my dog. You know, that's just not fair to him. So we kind of brought, is everything good? Yes. Um, my girlfriend just pulled in. So Bluetooth might connect her car. <laughs> no worries, dude. Not a worry at all. This is yeah. uh podcasting, bro. It's not, nothing's perfect. Um, <laughs> I forgot. So we kind of glazed over. Um, the reason that I initially started this podcast was to have veterans or people such as yourself who've served overseas in a, in that capacity, um, come on, kind of tell their story. If they've had any kind of issues relating to their service and how they feel from it. And I, I'm not wealthy. Hopefully one day I will be, and I can actually donate money and, you know, and help in that way. But, um, did, so when you, I had the exact same I don't know about exact same, but I felt the same when I got out. I felt like I lost the best friends that I had ever made. I felt like I lost my purpose. I lost my routine, you know, and I was kind of circling the drain for a while. Um, What did you do or not do that kind of helped you get, you get your spring back in your step and, and re re find yourself in your new role? Well, I was lucky enough to have a really, really good support system. When I left, I left and wound up um, in a hospital in Germany, uh, like just totally scrambled. And my whole family rallied around me. My, My brother was Red Cross flighted out there. My mom was stationed there. And like everybody just, like, like supported me through the the whole thing. And it was, it was really rough for a while for me. Like when it, like almost to the point of a hypochondriac, man, like couldn't leave the house, like depression setting in, you know, like anxiety, panic attack, all the, you know, all the symptoms, man. Um, and like got into, 
got into the doctors and they're just, you know, like nine different medications and like very old school, like, uh, you know, types of treatments for, you know, PTS and dude, it was, it was, that was horrible. And it's horrible. And I'm like looking at side effects and feeling side effects. And I'm like, you know, fuck this. I'll keep my PTSD. Thanks. You know? And I just, I wasn't going anywhere with it. You know, it was a bandaid for a bullet wound. And, uh, I got, so there was uh, operations manager for some like spec op teams that like I grew up with and she's a very close friend of mine. And she linked me up with a great, um, organization called the all secure foundation with Tom Satterley and his wife, Jen Satterley. Um, and, uh, so I started, reaching out to them and asking them for help and like how to deal with my issues. And they gave me some really, really good advice to get off medication and kind of take more of a holistic approach to therapy was, you know, taught me how to breathe, taught me uh, meditation exercises and grounding and like alternative medicines um, and, you know, some like retreats and, that like really started to have a positive effect almost instantaneously. Um, it was, it was rough getting off the meds at first, but really the dog carried me through it. Like out of, out of all of it, um, it was, it was the dog and it was taking the focus off of combat theater and menacing thoughts and putting that energy into training and learning and spending time with my dog and spending time in nature with my dog. And it was just, um, I mean, it saved my life, man. And I love it. And I never, never looked back. And that was really my path to healing and we're you know we're all still still healing none of that shit ever goes away um you just have better tools to deal with it and like um i didn't have emotional discipline when i first got home like i had all this emotion i had all the discipline in the world and range like ptsd's bullshit you know what i mean you're pussy if you have it right like oh well this guy has it, but I don't like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You it, like, that was, that's the culture. That was the culture. And even to like bring it up or talk about it, you did, you just didn't, no matter what they told you, like, Oh, it won't affect your clearance. It won't affect your job. Da, da, da. Bullshit. Mm-hmm. Right. The day that I demobilized midnight, my company canceled my insurance. Mm. You know what I mean? Just racking up medical bills. Mm. Um, so I felt, and like I said, I felt very alone, like a shell of the person that I used to be. I was so proud of what I was doing and like had this identity and this brotherhood. And when I got home, it was just all gone. And I, I felt so empty. And then like, what's really amazing is 
getting into dogs and getting into training, it's like that peer group that I missed and that like brotherhood that I missed, like I have it now. You know what I mean? Like guys like you, Sean Edwards, Pat, you know, like all of these guys, like-minded individuals with the same core values that like really just want to see you do good and lift you up and like build each other up. And like, I don't really like people, man. And like the thing about dog training is it showed me how to like humans again. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, like all of a sudden I can make friends, you know? Hell yeah. Yeah, dude, that's, that's, I, I agree, man. I my, my dog got me through it. My German shepherd. Um, I don't know if I ever showed you pictures of him. He was a very nice dog. I lost him. Uh, October will be two years. If I think about it, I'll still start crying, but he, yeah, did fucking dogs, man. We truly don't deserve them, you know? And that's what I like about it. I get to hang out with dogs and nature out here. And then, uh, you know, kind of, that kind of grounds me and slows me down and forces me to be calm, you know, you know, cause the energy transfer and I, I'm definitely glad that I connected with you guys and Sean and, um, you know, I had him on the podcast and ha- hearing Pat and what he's, he's going through the same thing, but like the level of treatment and understanding that's in the military now, as opposed to when I got out in 2010, dude, it's night and fucking day. Like they sent him to this place and they did everything you just mentioned. Like we went to like a week long class about not beating your wife and how to fill out a resume and then fucking see ya. You know? Yeah, seriously. Honestly, like I felt like, man, like, like they just, they just want me to kill myself so they don't have to pay me, you know, or, you know, that's really how I started to feel about it. And it is, it's crazy now the stuff that they have out there and like big shout out to all secure foundation. You should definitely check. Tom Satterly out and what he's doing. Amazing. Yeah. I would, you mentioned that previously, I've just been so fucking busy. I would love to have him on and have him tell his story and what, you know, what he does and learn about his foundation. That would be huge. Yeah. I'll link you guys up. Yeah. No, that would be sick. Um, if you could do it all over again, looking back, what would you do differently? Uh, I would have joined them. I would have joined the military. I would have done my time and I would have gone K nine. Yeah. I feel like I wish I would have, I wish I would have done that when I was 18. I feel like, like you guys get the short end of the stick, dude. Like you don't have the support that the military has. You don't have the VA after you get out and like, you're literally just a fucking number to them is at least in my mind. So I was lucky enough to, like I said, I had a really good support system and like things worked out for me. Um, but I have friends, um, my buddy in particular, uh, Maurice. Uh, so something happened to him downrange. He ends up in a hospital uh, in Afghanistan and there, you know, his wife is in the States and the bills are racking up because 
you know, insurance only covers whatever it covers. And they're telling him, oh, well, he had a, you know, undiagnosed pre-existing condition and da, 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 right? It was, he was probably in that hospital for like six months until she uncovers, like there's a bullet in his head. Mm. And um, like to this day, like dude can't talk. He can only say a couple words. Mm. Like I FaceTime him. We talk through emoji. I'm like, basically play gestures with him when I talk to him. He's still all there mentally and I love him. But to this day, like he has, he's millions of dollars in debt for mm. um, like the medical procedures. And like, they're just like washing their hands of it. That's and it's, yeah, it's horrible. That's crazy to me, dude, that they wouldn't fucking pick up the bill for that shit when you're over there doing what you're doing. That's just, I can't even comprehend that. And there's, there is a thing. It's called the Defense Base Act. It's like an extension of longshoremen that protects government contractors and is in place. But it's, you know, when I was over there, it was very hush hush. And, you know, they don't, they didn't, they don't tell you there's like support or help or protection. You know, um, and then, you know, if you are injured, like you don't say anything or you're not fit for duty. Like that's what happened to me. I was basically not fit for duty anymore. And, you know, they they, wash your hands. They they basically told me, Hey, you should just quit. Mm. And I was like, no, I'm not, I'm not going to quit until finally they're like, no, you dude, you're getting on a plane. You're, you're done. Mm. Did you guys have to carry around like your passport and money just in case something happened and you had to get out of there? Or is that kind of a myth? Uh, no, it's not a myth. Like, yeah, I had a, had, had a bug out bag, had cash, had, you know, other things we may or may not have supposed to have. Right. Um, <laughs> I had a buddy up near like he's Afghanistan, like one of the other stand borders, Kyrgyzstan, something working for, some contracting group and the the leadership of the group goes to Dubai to collect some money or something along those lines and basically bails on the contract and bails on his very small contract. But you know, those government contracts can be worth millions of dollars, even small ones bails on his contract, leaves my friend out there with nothing but his, uh, turp and shooter. And, um, Afghan army shows up and they're like, Hey, uh, you owe us money. And he's out there with just one Afghan guy. And they're like, we're, we're taking your passport and you're going to jail. And his Terps, like, if he's going to jail, I'm going to jail with him. Buys him some time that night, load up the truck, drive all the way across Afghanistan, get to the embassy in Kabul right where he tells him hey man they took my passport like i'm way out here all by myself um you know this isn't gonna go well so they give him a temporary passport send him to dubai with his turf and i mean like three days later he was on another contract but yeah god dude that's nerve-wracking oh my god Seriously. Yeah. Is there any other nerve wracking stories like that you care to share? Anything off the top of your head? Um, yeah. Okay. So (laughs) we, uh, when I first got out there, like, um, 
we're in RC North on some like land on some fob. And it was like just a couple of contractors, some, a couple of coalition forces and like it was Polish base. And we were going down to the ECP, like setting up infrastructure, like, um, RSOI or RSOIs and shit like that. And, um, like I'm working with these, uh, local nationals. Right. And I'm, I'm being like respectful and polite of them and like going to pick these guys up, taking them to work, getting them like the tools that they need. We're like digging trenches for like pipes and, you know, filling up sandbags and stuff. And these guys all got all these picks and tools and like, we're doing this for a couple of weeks. And there's this one Polish soldier, like working at the ECP and he's just like smacking the crap out of these. They're just like beating them as they're coming in, you know, like, oh. like mush. You just, you know, just treating them like, like crap. And, uh, one day he was on guard duty with us and like all these guys have all these tools and shovels and stuff. And it's just like me and this Polish soldier and he smacks the shit out of one of them. And like, you could just feel the mood change and they all start picking up tools oh. and like surrounding us. And I'm like, well, we're about to get beat to death oh. with, with, uh, tools. And like, we did, we deescalated that situation. And like, you know, I ended up leaving because I was like, yeah, I can't, you know, you guys get to send me out here with some Americans. Like I can't work with like what's going on out here. Like you're going to get us killed. So there's stuff like that. And then, yeah, some, some other pretty, it got pretty Western when, when I was first out there. So were you out there during uh, extortion or any of that, that stuff? What do you mean by that? When like Marcus Luttrell and then they shot that helicopter down with all those seals on it. Uh, in JBAD? I think that's where it was. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Do you guys feel the mood change or anything like within the military and the locals or? Yeah, bro. I was out there with like the cron burning and like all kinds of stuff. Yeah. There was always like, I was out there for nearly a decade. So there was a lot of climate change going on like through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could definitely, you like, you could almost feel it in the air. Like, okay. You've heard saying like, it's quiet, a little too quiet. You know, you could feel it when stuff was going to go down. Like you almost get those spidey senses, you know, and that's, and it usually would, it it usually would. And it was either like somebody didn't get paid off, you know, or cause that's what, that's what we were doing. We were like basically paying warlords to bribe or hold off attack so we could get some place to play safely or um things crazy shit like that damn is it really like the stone age over there i mean where did you ever go over no i went to iraq never oh, never got to yeah. go to afghanistan i mean it was like the stone age there but they had cars and shit oh no it's like it was totally like the stone age like <laughs> um so I think I had like 32 local nationals working with us at one point. And I remember like we brought in 
the wretch with like a, like picking up 40 foot connexes off of the truck and the wretch pulled in and like this old Afghan man, he looked like he was 200. He's probably like 30. <laughs> like the, the wretch pulled in and he, I mean, he's looking at it like it's a, a Tyrannosaurus Rex or something like sheer terror has <laughs> never seen anything like it, you know? Um, so like in RC North, they had like a lot of, tribal communities too and uh yeah it was like we it was like the stone age with some of them and then some of some of the guys over there were like very well educated and you know spoke many different languages and had like all kinds of amazing skills like i had this one interpreter Wally Muhammad and I, I literally used to try to stump him with words <laughs> and he spoke with like a proper English accent wow. and he'd be like, Oh, it's yes. This word's derived from German or wh- whatever. And I'm like, Where the f- <laughs> Dude, they're not paying, they're not paying you enough. Wow. I remember we had one Terp. I think he was a Terp and he would, uh, like at the internet center on like one of the main fobs, you would go in and he would be day trading dude on stocks, man. That motherfucker had so much money in stocks. I just, I couldn't believe it. But then you go out in some of the villages and like they're wiping their ass with their hands and it's just completely archaic, you know, but I will say that the people like the normal people, dude, they would give you their last piece of fucking bread or, you know, whatever they had to help you. They, they were really genuine and, and, uh, humble people the majority um i do remember uh i'm gonna say a funny story um we our interpreters are from africa and we had one named ronnie 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 as we used to call him he fucking barely spoke english and i don't think he spoke the right dialect to arabic for where we were and i remember we were the last uh gun truck in this convoy we were going going back to base or something it was dark fucking comms go down in my truck. I can't get, I can't talk to any of the other trucks. And there was a, uh, I think it was called the dagger, like the GPS system for the combat, uh, whatever blue force tracker where you can see friendlies and and everything in the whole country. And next to the dagger where we had to change the batteries periodically, there was a emergency halon switch right to set off the fucking giant halon thing in the back and i'm driving and i hear my a gunner uh hiding and he goes man these fucking batteries dude and then all of a sudden it was like an explosion went off dude i couldn't breathe he fucking tripped the halon system dude and we're like the last truck in the convoy so i immediately slam on the brakes and I'm opening the door trying to fucking breathe and uh like i can't call the rest of the convoy like hey dude stop stop you know and like, I just see their taillights getting further and further away. And then you start freaking out like, oh my God, we're going to be fucking left out here. And uh, luckily I think they noticed the turret gunner and the, and the truck in front of us noticed that we were fucking having some problems, but we get back to base. Uh, I remember during the debrief, Ronnie, he's like, batteries, no good. Batteries, no good. It was fucking just funny story that popped into my head. Oh man. The good old days. Shit, I remember one. Yeah. I remember one time, uh, I uh, we we did like this snap ECP. We would go out and we'd set up and we'd stop and search every vehicle on this one highway. And I, uh, the lieutenant was with us, and I had to take a shit really bad, dude. And I had been sitting there for hours. And he's like, "Yeah, take Doc and just go, you know, in one of these. I think it was like abandoned houses or something." And it was 
very hot. It was during the summer and, um, I go up to the roof and I like hang my ass over the edge of the roof, dude. And I'm, you can hear it like smacking the ground, you know? And I start hearing like people like laughing and talking in Arabic. And I turn around, dude, there's a family of fucking Iraqis sleeping on the roof on the house next door. Bro, they saw like my butthole flex. I mean, they, they were looking right at me, dude. <laughs> I'm taking a shit off the top of this building. It was crazy. Uh, oh, man. Yes, sir. Yeah. We, uh, <laughs> so, uh, we, yeah, we had a, we had a Ugandan guy living in one of the transient tents with us and we were uh, like bouncing around place to place and, I was, I mean, I think it was my first year there and like one night in the tent, this guy is like, he wakes us all up. He's like screaming and he's like, spider, spider, spider. And we're like, what's it? And he's holding his head. We're like, what are you talking about spider? And like turn on all the lights and sure enough, like we find this, like, I don't know if it was a scorpion or a spider. It was like this bright yellow color. And we get it in like a water bottle and send him to the medic. And we didn't see this dude for like weeks. And we're like, I wonder if he's dead. And he, he comes back like a couple weeks later and he's got like half of his head shaved, like a big old gnarly scar and like, just like still like pus leaking from it. And that night, um, <laughs> we uh turned the lights out using a cot next to me and i look over at him and he's just laying in his cot like this (laughs) (laughs) all you can see is like white eyes like wide open like this dude was legit scared of everything after that that sucks dude I remember yeah. we had these big med kits on the back of each of our trucks. So like if the truck in front of you went down or something, you could run up and get the med kit off the back and not use yours or whatever. And these kids in this town, I guess the turret hunter wasn't paying attention. And they ran up and they stole this med kit off this fucking truck. It was like a week later, maybe a little bit longer. Um, we had to go do this like medical thing. So like we were there to set up security, like on the roof and the perimeters. And we were going to invite the townspeople in for treatment with our corpsman. And this fucking mm-hmm. kid comes up and he had his head wrapped up, dude. And they take this wrap off of his head. And it was like half of his head was like third degree burns, like sunken in. He got into the quick clot that was in that fucking uh, med bag that they stole off the truck. And they, I don't know if he put it on himself or if somebody put it on him or what, but it fucked his shit up, dude. Man. Yeah, it was gnarly. All right, dude, we're just... Oh. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, like, overall, like, my time spent over there was really awesome, and, uh, like, it was different. Two of my best friends that I grew up with, like, knew since I was 14, I was over there with. Nice. Both of my Both of my brothers and my mother, like all at the same time. Like, wow. Got to, got to see quite frequently. So majority of my time was really fun. Um, just some of it was pretty shitty. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. At least you had family and support man. If I could have went over there with my best, well, I did go over with my best friends, but like childhood best friends would have been a lot different, you know, 
also a lot scarier too. God forbid something happened, you know, but oh, shit, man, we're about over an hour and some change here. Uh, any kind of closing thoughts or you want to tell everybody your social media where they can find you? What do you got to say before we end this? Um, so I'm on Facebook, American canine dynamic. That's the only social idea. That's really the only advertising I do. Um, and uh, that's about it. Thanks for having me on here, man. Can't wait to see you in November. It's going to be fun. Yeah, dude. Hopefully so. I sold my, uh, sports car, um, probably four or five days ago, Tuesday to be, to be precise. And, uh, it sucks cause I'm sharing my wife's car. But uh, I'm either going to get a van <clears throat> or, you know, like we live in the mountains, man. And like a lot of the camping spots we go to or you got to go down trails, shit like that. I was thinking, dude, you see a problem with a, like a suburban, like a newer suburban taking all the seats down or folding them down as long as I can get two or three crates in them and my bite suit and gear. I mean, I don't know. What do you I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Dude, I see a lot of people with a lot of different vehicles. There's a lady that goes to the Sean's that drive, I think she drives a big old Suburban and that looks pretty awesome. We also like my girl drives a Honda Pilot, dude. I can fit four rough lands in there and me and her really? and my equipment. Yeah, dude. Like that thing is awesome. I freaking love it. Oh. And like I drive a truck, which is cool and fun and everything, but I've honestly considered getting the pilot just because gas prices and like, I can still fit three dogs in XL Rufflands and my equipment and a partner in crime. Really? And a pilot. So my wife has a CRV, but it's a, I think it's a 2010. What, so what, is that like a step up from a CRV size wise? Cause I can't, <laughs> I can't fit my uh, XL Dakota in in the back of her car it, like it won't fit through yeah. the door we can fit like we pop the hatchback two xl roughlands boom right in the back fold the front seats down another xl roughland and then you put like a medium next to that one wow so i don't know size wise i'm not really a honda guy i would have never even considered it but uh she has one and then like a couple people at the the west pin mondial have the same one and really love it. I, I freaking love the thing. Dude. What it flies it? too. Uh, I think it's a 20, 2020. It's pretty new. I'll have to, I'm going to have to look into that. Cause if I can, I mean, that's probably cheaper than buying like do this, the suburb the Chevy's are out of sight. You know, something you have to get one with over a hundred thousand miles, which I don't want to do. I know Hondas and Toyotas like never break. You know, and I'll send, I'll send you pictures of mine. You yeah. put a rack on top. You even mm. do like, if you wanted to get really get mobile, you can put like uh, one of the like tow long trailers with dog kennels in it. You know, mm. you could really move around with some dogs in that thing. Okay. That's good to know. I appreciate that. I'm definitely going to look into that for sure. All right, brother. Well, uh, thanks for coming on and taking the time, man. I really appreciate it. I know the audience will too. Thanks for having me, man. No problem. See you. Thank you for tuning in to the Dogs of War. <laughs> <laughs>